Welcome to Judaism Demystified, the podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Ike Dweck. Mr. Dweck is the founder and CEO of the SAFE Foundation, a New York State licensed OASAS Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services outpatient treatment program located in Brooklyn, New York. The foundation serves as a reliable haven for those experiencing difficulties with drug addiction, alcoholism, and compulsive gambling. Their staff is comprised of professionals who have all received comprehensive training and licensing in the field of addiction and substance abuse. Since SAFE's inception in 2003, they've remained committed to helping patients and their families create healthier lives. Without further ado, Ike Dweck. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. So can you tell us about how the SAFE Foundation started and a little bit about your life, your story? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, reaching out and uh, having the opportunity to tell my story and tell you about my organization. Uh, my name is uh, Ike Tweck. I'm the founder and CEO of the SAFE Foundation. Uh, I started SAFE about 2003. Uh, this summer will actually... Um, celebrating our 20-year anniversary. Uh, we've uh, counseled and helped close to 8,400 people uh, in th at that time, uh, since that time. And uh, my story goes back a little bit. Uh, I'm a compulsive gambler. I'm in recovery since November 3rd, 1987. Uh, I'm still connected in recovery. Uh, I still go to my Gamblers Anonymous meetings uh, for the past 35 years. And... Uh, from the ages of 12 to 23, I, I think it was, 12 to 23, I was just out of control. I couldn't uh, control my addiction. I was uh, gambling, lying, cheating, stealing, and uh, I was not the, a good person, quite frankly. I wasn't the son that my parents uh, thought they raised, and uh, I had addiction. And in those days, you really, uh, there was not a lot of treatment for addictions, especially in the Jewish community. Um, and so I just, uh, hit bottom, um, in 1987, uh, it just, it gets tiring trying to gamble every day and owe money and let people down and to steal and be uncomfortable knowing that every person that you meet, you're trying to take something from them. Um, so I, I suffered enough. I suffered a lot of, uh, a lot of hardships, but uh, once I started to, all the things I wanted to get when I was gambling, you know, whether it was uh, money, friends, uh, cars, you know, uh, clothes, all the stuff I wanted from gambling, I never got. But when I stopped gambling, I got money, I got family, I got uh, business, I got respect, and all those things that I wanted uh, from gambling, I, I, I got them from not gambling. And uh, I started my path into recovery. I was in the sneaker business for 20 years, from 1987, probably till about 2007 or 2008. And um, um, people used to call me from my community, ask me if I would be, uh, they heard I had a gambling problem and uh, I was in some level of recovery and if I would help them with their family member. And I started to volunteer my time. And uh, over the course of years, I started to volunteer helping others. And if you know anything about problem gamblers, we're very selfish people. We only want to help ourselves, nobody else. 
But when you're in recovery, you want to help others. And from 1987 till 2001 at the time, uh, I was just volunteering my time to help others. And then when I was helping people, taking them to meetings for gambling problems, then I got calls from people who wanted me to help them with their uh, drug problems uh, and alcohol problems. And I started to branch into all these different areas while I was I had a full-time job and I had a, a sneaker business, uh, retail sneaker stores. Uh, in 2001, uh, the Sephardic Bikul Halim asked me uh, if I would come for a meeting. And two gentlemen uh, from Bikul Halim, Carrie Sutton and Sam Sutton, asked me if uh, I would sell my business or at least uh, come work for them full time. They knew there was a big problem in the Jewish community and especially in the Sephardic community at the time with drugs, alcohol, and gambling problems. And a lot of people were calling me. Uh, the Sephardic Bikul Halim is a mental health agency, and uh, they were hiring professionals to come work for them. And so at that time, they weren't seeing a lot of, you know, calls for help, because in a field of addiction, uh, usually, you know, you have to go out and get them. And that was really much my specialty. I was very on the go. I was working out of my truck. I would go find people that needed help. I would do interventions, I would do mediations, I would take people to rehab, I would do all that kind of stuff. And uh, they asked me to go back to school, which I did. I got my license and my degrees. I worked at the Sephardic Bikuhalim for a year and a half. I uh, had about 75 or so clients by myself that I would do counseling. I would do. I would drive people to rehab. I would, uh, I would take people to hospitals in the middle of the night. People... Uh, uh, would call me all day and night, uh, and I was only one person. And after a year and a half, uh, I decided that it was time to make the move to go try and start my own organization because there was, it, I, I needed to find my own place uh, in the organization in an organization so that I could branch out to help more and more people and build a team. Uh, today, in two thousand and twenty-three. Uh, we're licensed uh, by the New York State Oasis, which is uh, the licensing body for addiction here in Brooklyn. We also have a license in New Jersey by the Jersey Shore for our Sephardic community and outside community and deal, New Jersey. But we're not only there to help Sephardic community members, we help everybody that call. I get calls from all over the world, all over the country, you name it, people are calling, they know about SAFE, they know about what we do here. And... We help anybody and everybody that calls. Um, Amazing. And so that's pretty much uh, where we're at today. Thank you so much. So I know there's a very big stigma when people have issues, especially when they have an addiction problem. And what are some ways that the SAFE Foundation destigmatizes this problem? Right. So. That's a that's a real issue in not only the world, but now Jewish community as well, right? In the Ashkenaz and Sephardic community. Um, I remember um, going to treat people. I had an office in uh, the Bikuchalim office when I first started. It was by the the uh, the, end, the exit door. Uh, so people could come in and through the side door and nobody can go through the front door. And... Uh, I wanted to give people their privacy and their dignity and try to help them without the whole world knowing kind of thing. But I think over the course of years, the more I was able to help 
people, the more that people realize that everybody's got something, everybody has issues. And the more that I start to help more and more people, the more they people came to the forefront and wanted to help others. So if you help one person, then they're going to go help three people. And then start, word started to get out and branch out that, you know what? Um, it's not worth having the stigma. I'd rather be healthy, get the help I need, and be open and honest. Because part of being in recovery is your open and honesty. And it just, it, 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 we were on fire. We were able to help so many people. And word got out. And then people in the uh, Eskenaz community used to call me from Crown Heights and Borough Park and uh, we used to meet and people were having uh, recovery meetings in their homes and people were, you know, it was the, the recovery movement was branching out to where we see it today. 20 years later, it's night and day. I mean, we have people uh, in our community, uh, probably I would say we've broken that stigma, maybe 75, 80% of the community are more open to accepting help and to being open to uh, not worrying about the stigma. More people are in recovery, getting married, uh, getting new jobs and being able to uh, run their life in a healthier way. And I see that also. I get calls from people in Crown Heights as well and, uh, and, and in the Eskenaz community in Borough Park and Williamsburg that there are meetings that people have graduated from here and started AA or GA meetings in their homes in Borough Park or Crown Heights, Williamsburg's in some of these areas. So uh, I think the more that there's recovery speak and there's more recovery happening, uh, more people are getting the help they need and breaking that stigma. So one of the things that I think obviously we have to destigmatize in the communities, but I think one of the problems is that children often mimic their parents, what they see. And in the community, let's say that a culture that really kind of um, romanticizes, let's just say, drinking on specific holidays or kiddish clubs, Shabbat, and, yeah, yeah, Shabbat, and 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 Purim and Simchat Torah, and all these things. So even certain, let's say, Hasidic groups, or they, you know, they have Fabrengans or whatever it is. How that that seems like one, you know, big obstacle to overcome, because in, it's parents are always trying to tell their children, you know, go to these events and you know, learn about drugs and alcohol and all that. But oftentimes children would just see their parents doing these things. So is this an issue that you come across a lot? A mixed message is a very big challenge. What the parents are doing versus what they want their children to do, right? So today, the legalization of marijuana, a lot of parents are smoking pot thinking that, oh, it's legal, but they don't realize that their kids are gonna emulate their parents. And so they wanna be like their parents. So the, the important thing is to have a proper message that you're going to give your children because they emulate you. Now, you want to be 30, 40, 50 years old, smoking pot and doing drugs. Okay, it's time to grow up. It's time to realize that, you know, um, your kids are going to do what you're doing. And it's very hard for your kids to want to live a healthy life if you're not living a healthy life. So um, Purim and Jewish holidays, uh, even kiddish clubs, we've taken a real stand in the community to try to put a stop to the kiddish clubs in our shuls, our organization, uh, you know, our synagogues uh, in the in the community. Um, some people get got very upset and won't even come to the rabbi's classes after uh, shachrit, let's say on a Saturday, 
because they wanted to have the kiddush clubs or they wanted to have the ability to drink uh, nine o'clock in the morning after uh, a rabbi's class. But the rabbis, we've educated the rabbis to understand it's not a way that we should send our husbands home uh, drunk, falling asleep on the table. You know, I have a couple of cases uh, over the years where um, Friday would come and the husband would come home and he'd be drinking all night, Friday night on the dinner, on a Shabbat table. And then Saturday he wakes up and he goes to the Kiddush club and then uh, he comes home from, from shul and he's falling asleep on the table and then he falls asleep and the kids don't see their father. And he says, I don't have a problem. I only have, I only drink on Shabbos, you know, or Shabbat. Yeah. And, and people don't realize that, yeah, you, you do have a problem because you're building up all this anticipation about the drinking all for that one day, that 24 hours. And imagine the trauma that you're causing your children, right? They don't get their father. They don't get their, their, uh, their husband that they can really function on the Shabbat table and really set up and set an example for the children. And that's really a huge issue. Mm -hmm. But the stigma is really the stigma is really attached to um, to the to the rabbis and what they're willing to do in the synagogues, uh -huh. right? Uh, Purim, Purim. Uh, I met with uh, a very big rabbi, Chamavadjo uh, Yosef, who I was a chief rabbi uh, for many many years. He passed away years ago. That um, he even acknowledged to us that it's not about getting drunk on Purim; it's about just being happy. And uh, sending a good message to your family about uh, not getting drunk or carrying on in an unhealthy way on Purim. I think, unfortunately, many people don't think they have a problem because they're like, oh, but it's Shabbat, it's the norm, it's Kiddush Club, we have to drink, it's Purim, Sauda, that's what people do, you know? When someone says they occasionally drink, drinking once or twice a week, that is not a problem for them. So I guess my question for you is, how does someone know that they have a problem? They have an actual alcohol problem, drug problem, or a gambling problem, an addiction and, issue. And who's getting them the help? Is it right, they, right. They to come forward or do we have to reach out? Right. As uh, Rabbi Abraham Tursky uh, used to tell me, Ike, he used to say, denial is not a river in Egypt, <laughs> right? And he was so right, because most of the people that call for help are family members. I would say 70% of the calls that come in are from a family member, from a, a friend or a work or colleague. Um, only 20%, maybe 30% of the time, people are coming and saying, you know, my life is unmanageable. I'm out of control. I got arrested. Uh, I lost my job. Um, I, I couldn't wake up to, to go to work the next day. Only when those things start to happen can you realize that you um, you have a problem. Uh, they say, you know, there's two ways to get help. One is when you reach rock bottom, or two, if somebody pushes you that way, right? They raise the bar to try and get help, and that's even more challenging. So until the person feels that uh, that they want help because they need help, it's very hard to help them. It's very hard, but it's it's right. it's a challenge with addiction. That's just what it is. And uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes people end up in jail. Sometimes they end up in a hospital. Sometimes they overdose. Sometimes they have people chasing them for money uh, in an unhealthy way. And, you know, you just you just got to get 
sick and tired of being sick and tired all the time. Mm -hmm. And that really only comes when you finally reach uh, rock bottom. So is it, let's say, the drug that produces the addict? Or do you find that it's usually the, you know, it's a certain type of personality trait that, that will, you know, you're looking for certain signs or red flags and or characteristics that will, you know, ult ultimately always lead to addiction. So it's really hard to say. There's so many studies that come up every day. There's another study that comes out that says, wow, you know, if your mom and dad has an addiction problem, your child is four to six times more likely to have a problem, right? Some level of addiction doesn't have to be the same one, but you know, uh, society, could that cause addiction? That also can be, right? Low self-esteem, that could be an issue. Mm -hmm. um, th there's so many There's so many different reasons that they're giving today. There's so many different uh, issues that come up when it comes to addiction that it's so hard to pinpoint, right? Genetically is probably something that's most common, um, like we talk about. If a family member or mom or dad has some level of addiction, uh, my I had no addiction in my family and I'm a compulsive gambler. So um, sometimes it's a social issue. Uh, I know when I was growing up, uh, I used to gamble with uh, friends and it became something that I got a real rush and excitement from. Um, and so it just took over my life and it just, you know, it just really took over who I was. So it, it's really hard to say uh, where, when, how, but underlying trauma is a very big cause. Also, somebody might have had some underlying trauma that they need to self-medicate from. And that's also a, a big issue. So it's it's usually some form of self-medicating for some underlying issues that come up. So I know I'm throwing a lot of things out there, but... Well, you just... bring up trauma and um, I hear things about like, rehabs versus trauma centers or like what why where what are people like how do people know where to turn when they have this problem because you hear like i've known some people let's say who went to rehab and they went multiple times and didn't seem to help so like what do you do like for a specific uh problem i, I think the first thing is take take get a the proper assessment right Oftentimes you hear from people that say, oh, I spoke to this person. And they said, oh, I'm I should go to rehab. You know, not everybody needs rehab, right? Not everybody needs a trauma center. Not everybody needs some level of higher level of care. Um, but the proper assessment should be done by a professional that really has the understanding uh, and, and the wherewithal to know which direction to go. We're not sending, when people call me, I'm not looking to send people to rehab just to go to rehab, right? Um, and you want to exhaust all proper areas first before you end up going to inpatient program. So um, I, I think it's something that the proper guidance, because today everybody's an expert. Everybody seems to know, oh, you should go to this rehab, go to that rehab. You know, there's thousands of rehabilitation centers, inpatient rehabilitation centers in the world. I work with only probably 20 or 25 of them that understand uh, the sense of nature and the cultural nature of Jews, because we want people to understand where we come from and what is, you know, what our, what our needs are. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think it's important to get the proper evaluation and not to, and not to, you know, you don't want to doctor shop, but you want to get to meet the, the proper people to give you a good evaluation. 
and assessment. Mm -hmm. So I, I know that you guys are a drug, alcohol, and gambling rehabilitation center, mm -hmm. but what are the most common drugs that people turn to nowadays as opposed to in the past? Maybe what should we be looking out for? Yeah, um, what are the new you know drugs that we should be right. looking for? Right, so, so today, uh, uh, SAFE is a drug, alcohol, and um, and gambling outpatient program, right? Okay. Where um, you come here, uh, hour, hour and a half, uh, two, three days a week, you're in group, individuals, seeing the doctors, being assessed properly, et cetera. Uh, today, when it comes to uh, substances, alcohol is always top, right? Alcohol is always a big issue because culturally, as Jews, it's so readily available, and it's uh, our holidays are built around it. Whether it's Pesach or Purim or Shabbat or Shabbos, right? Uh, that's really a cultural thing that's engraved in all of us. When it comes to drugs today, um, a lot of the drugs, opiates, pain medications, are very big today. Unfortunately, if you're not getting drugs from a doctor and you're buying drugs from the street, today they're probably tainted with what's called fentanyl. Fentanyl is the biggest killer today. We have people who are buying drugs from the street who are in our program that think they're buying a Vicodin, and it's laced with fentanyl. And we have to hand out Narcan kits for people that might overdose, and the family member can revive them with the Narcan kit. Um, but I, I'm, you shouldn't take any drugs, but if you're buying drugs from the street, the odds are today it's tainted with with uh fentanyl it's the number one killer in america today you know like we you mentioned marijuana and i always found marijuana to be some somewhat harmless uh i mean i'm not an expert but i now that i'm hearing from like younger people that there's it's sometimes it's laced with even small grains of fentanyl and it's extremely right. potent and deadly um what are ways we can kind of because it, it seems almost inevitable that teenagers are going to smoke weed Especially like, when the smoke shops are open with like every, every block. There's one right right next door to my house, like a, yeah. a few a few houses away. Yeah, same with us. So we have to we have to kind of acknowledge that okay, you're gonna smoke weed. So or do, chew it. Do we, yeah. <laughs> it's a crazy question, but do you like offer to bring them the weed instead of going getting on the street? Because that that's kind of like a, an issue that I've been hearing a lot with parents. You know, like that. They're worried that their teenage kids are going to go out and buy weed on the street. And weed was never something that people were concerned with other than the gateway drug right. you know, aspect of it. Yeah. You know, my message is clear when I'm trying to counsel parents. It's what your parents accept and tolerate with your own children, right? I, I, I'm not comfortable being somebody who's going to deliver drugs to my children. My message is clear. It's not something that we accept in our home. It's not something that as a parent I will tolerate with my kids. Uh, and it's not something that I'm going to support. Um, yeah, you're right. It's everywhere and, and everywhere and anywhere. But I'm not going to support that message. I'm going to support more that you're better than that. Um, I'm going to build up my kids' self-esteem. I'm going to make them feel good that they don't need that. And I, you know, I remember when I was growing up, even though I had a problem gambling, I had a lot of friends that were doing drugs. But I wouldn't accept that for myself. I wouldn't. I didn't want that to be part of my life. I never drank, did drugs, wasn't part of my lifestyle. 
And uh, I, I rose above that. And I didn't want that to be my reputation, even though I was, you know, I was uh, struggling uh, in, in the areas of, of uh, gambling. So I think the message is supposed to be very clear and concise when it comes from your parent. Um, and and that, that message of it's not something that we accept in our family. It's not something that we tolerate. And if it's something that you feel that you're strong enough against that as a parent, you should give that message over to your children. That will your exercise, healthy living. Today, ex exercise and healthy eating and healthy living is such a big part of America today. Why do I have to go the other way? I don't want to go the other way. I want to go the healthy way. I want to, I want to teach my kids that your self-esteem should be big and strong. It shouldn't be that you should just cave into uh, smoke shops on the corner of your uh, of your of your house or your or your neighborhood. It's not something that I I will promote. So yeah. it seems like almost in America, you know, you have big pharma advertising everywhere, and you know, everywhere you turn in, a lot of times people will go into like rehab, and then they'll be prescribed medication because they are, let's say, bipolar. They have, they discover that they have some issue underlying issue that needs to be medicated, and that's when they get access to certain or just a simple drugs. back pain yeah yeah whatever it is and um you know i'm i'm wondering you know what we could do about that and also as an alternative to that there's there's been like some studies now and people are talking about like microdosing like psilocybin for, yeah. for like depression i just want to get your take on that everything is so new you know <laughs> everything's so new everybody's coming up using ketamine for depression everybody has a a, a new study you know, I don't know. I'm old school. Uh, I like to to listen, to read up, and and uh, listen about the, some of the new strategies to try and help people. For now, I'm going to focus on the old strategies that have been successful, especially for our clients here. Um, yeah, everybody's trying something. Everybody's. I, I hear you know somebody wants to do ayahuasca, ayahuasca, ayahuasca. Right. I'm sorry. Ayahuasca. Yeah. Ayahuasca. Right. <laughs> um, you know, there are people all over the place that are trying all these new techniques and new strategies on how to overcome different things. Um, therapeutically, I think good old fashioned therapy. Uh, doctors today are prescribing very easily a lot of different medications. Right. Um, you just have to get comfortable to realize that, you know, not everything's about medication. It's about hard work. And I think as a society, we've come to just to just to think that everything's so easy and so quick, and that's the easy way out. Uh, uh, this young man that was in my office uh, right before this uh, podcast, he was talking about, yeah, I go to the doctor. He gave me this for for I couldn't sleep, and he gave me this for that. I said, well, have you ever tried meditation? Have you tried uh, you know uh, exercise before you go to bed? Did you, uh, did you try any of this stuff? No, I never tried it. I said, well, why haven't you? He says, well, the doctor just gave me, you know, this medication to sleep or I'm feeling anxious, you know, and uh, he says, oh, just take this once a day. I said, well, why don't you try to slow your mind down and and understand that not everything is about medication. It's about therapeutic ways to help yourself, whether it's uh, therapy or uh, meditation or exercise. Uh, that's always the best way to me. So I know you're pressed for time. So I'm just going to, I want to wrap this up by uh, letting our audience know, you know, how to, how can we connect to you? Let's say, do you visit other communities, do presentations um, and how can we find you? I'm just, uh, I'm just happy to help everybody and anybody that I can that calls. Um, 
I've gone speaking to many different uh, schools out on the island or uh, in Jersey or Manhattan. Uh, all you have to do is call 718-GET-SAFE, 718-GET-SAFE. Uh, we're here 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we're happy to help anybody and everybody as much as we can. It's it's a tidal wave. Today, the world is upside down. Mm. I feel so bad for the people that are, you know, growing up today in this environment. You know, the legal legalization of gambling. They've made in one year over $70 billion in, uh, in gambling wages. Uh, and imagine so many people who are getting help. We have a Gamblers Anonymous meeting here every Sunday night that we've had for 18 years. And we see how many people are coming in today with gambling problems every week. It's like a tidal wave. And even with the marijuana, legalization of marijuana, you think they're doing this to help people? They're just doing it for the taxes. They're just doing it for the money, you know? And so it's it's parents have to really stay connected with their kids. They got to keep talking with their kids. You have to keep having those conversations that are challenging who are your friends? Who are the kids? Who you who are you hanging out with? Are you sure that these are the right people that you want to hang out with or you want to be with? So it's a constant challenge, but parents can't give up and you can't just say, oh, it's everywhere. Parenting is a full-time job. And so here at SAFE, we try to promote that and we try to promote this healthy lifestyle. So I'm happy to help anybody that calls 718-GET-SAFE. Uh, you could call uh, www.thesafefoundation.org. We're a non-for-profit, and uh, we won't turn anybody away. We're happy to help everybody and anybody. Thank you so much. This is thank amazing. you. Thank you. No, I thank you. I think I thank you for the forum and for allowing me a few minutes to um, to try and give back um, to to you guys and to everybody out there. So thank you very much. I look forward to doing this again. That's Same. Thank you so much. Thank I'm you. in. I'm in. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys. Thank you.